welcome to Toho Yaro, your monthly podcast where we Toho guys explore Japanese film. I'm Scott, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Alex. Hey. And Joey. Hello, hello. Uh, this month we're talking about Akira Kurosawa's 1952 film oh, Ikiru. is To Live. Uh, this is our first Akira Kurosawa film, uh, Kurosawa being probably the most well-known Japanese director outside of Japan. Needs little introduction, uh, but we'll go into a little bit here. Uh, his first uh, directorial film was uh, Sugata Senshiro, which was actually made during the war. He had been working as an editor for about 10 years by the time he actually got to uh, direct his first film and it shows that he already had some pretty good mastery his first uh, big film after that was drunken angel which car stars uh, takashi shimura and uh, toshiro mifune uh, that was uh, i believe 1948 and then in 1950 was the first time international audiences first got to know him as uh, rashomon won the venice film festival gold lion award uh, ikiru comes out two years after Rashomon. Uh, it's there's he also did a an adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot in between those two films, and uh, Ikiru comes out two years before Seven Samurai. So this movie is uh, predates more of his most of his well known Jidegeki period samurai films. So uh, this uh, movie was directed by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, is written by Kurosawa and two of his frequent collaborators, Shinobu Hashimoto and Hideo Oguni. Um, uh, in interviews, they kind of talk about how Oguni is was generally functioning as their editor, and most of the ideas were from Kurosawa and Hashimoto, and Oguni would mostly just kind of keep them together. Uh, the cinematographer on this was Asakazu Nakai, uh, who is almost as prolific as, uh, maybe more prolific than Akira Kurosawa with just nearly a hundred films across his, uh, uh, career. And then, uh, finally for the music, we get to, uh, composer Fumio Hayasaka, who's a pretty interesting character. He was actually, uh, and as, as a young adult, became friends with Akira Ikafube, who is the uh, composer for Godzilla, as you may re recall. Um, uh, Fumio Hayasaka is actually responsible for introducing Ikafube to Toho studio and uh, helped get him his first job as composer in film. So uh, real, real interesting story there. They used to play in a string quartet together along with uh, Ikafube's uh, brother. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I do kind of love uh, the sort of like crossovers that you can find between like staff and cast members between movies that are kind of more like art house uh, movies like Kurosawa's movies and the stuff that's sort of regarded a little bit more as like schlocky stuff like horror movies and monster movies mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, another interesting note about Hayasaka is that he had uh, tuberculosis 
and his health started declining a little bit before they started filming Igaru. So the uh, the subject matter of the film was a little bit resonant to him as evidenced in some of the letters he had back and forth with uh, Kurosawa around the time. Uh, he ended up dying just three years after the movie came out. So uh, moving on to the cast, we have uh, Toho Yaro alum Takashi Shimura, who you may remember as Dr. Yamane from Godzilla, uh, in a not too dissimilar role of a kind of sweet, disheveled old man. Uh, his character's name is Kanji Watanabe. And uh, the other performer I wanted to highlight is uh, Miki Odagiri, who plays Toyo Odagiri, the uh, the young lady in his office. Um, this was actually her first acting role, and she took her uh, her the Odagiri and her stage name from the character. Uh, she was not a very prolific actress after this, but uh, I think for this being her first big acting role, just the kind of like expressiveness and infectious charm that she has is pretty remarkable. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, the the rest of the cast, uh, I I will just say, they're uh, Kurosawa is a big fan of having kind of like almost a theater troupe, so he has his stable of of regular cast members that he uses. Uh, Takashi Shimura, in addition to being uh, in uh, Sugata Sanshiro, uh, was, had been in, uh, this was his 11th film with Kurosawa out, in, out of the 14 that Kurosawa made up to this point. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, this was made in post-war Japan and a lot of the themes and, and things about crushing bureaucracy uh, are are uh, very forward. Uh, Kurosawa has a, a pretty strong uh, anti-establishment streak in him uh, and uh, it really shows through. It's in contrast to uh, Ozu, a, a, another popular Japanese director at the time who is probably best known for Tokyo Story, who is more uh, traditionalist in both, uh, you can contrast this in both their themes in their films and their style of filmmaking, as we'll we'll talk about as we go through. Uh, uh, I was going to ask you guys what your uh, personal relationships with this film, if you had seen it before, or if this was your first time. Uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen Ikuru before. Um, it was a couple years ago after I was getting a bunch of uh, recommendations from a few friends of mine. And somebody told me that Ikiru is is possibly one of the best Japanese films you'll see, and uh, I was like, oh, "All right, we'll see." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, it was uh, it was it was it's a beautiful film. Um, I I loved it when I saw it, and uh, upon rewatch, uh, it's you know there's a little more to more to see, uh, you know, when you have uh, all the context of the film already. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, my first time seeing it. Um, I have seen a handful of Kurosawa films and definitely a fan of his and of uh, Takashi Shimura uh, from his other collaborations with Kurosawa, as well as his like appearance in the Godzilla movies and the Torasan movies. Uh, so I've always wanted to see this, and it's definitely like keeps coming up on people's recommendations. Uh, I know several people who point to this as their favorite Kurosawa movie. Um 
but I think just one of the things is that I didn't really know much about it besides the fact that I, I think I'd sort of picked up that it was about like a, a man that was dying uh, at the end of his life and and knowing, you know, uh, Kurosawa, I kind of like had the assumption that it was a pretty long movie, could have been kind of like kind of slow at times. And so I think I've just over time, you know, wanted to see it. But then there's all these tantalizing candy of like monster movies and stuff like that, that I could uh, more immediately gratifying things that that I would watch instead. So uh, I'm really, really glad that I finally sat down and watched it because I loved it. Yeah, I uh, I watched it a few years ago as well, and I enjoyed it, but I don't think that I paid really nearly as much attention to it as I did this time, and I felt like it was a lot more resonant, kind of more focused watching it this go-round. So, uh, getting into the synopsis of the film itself, uh, we start with the uh, pretty stark opening credits. Uh, Shimura gets a single billing just by himself in the credits, which I think is nice kind of highlighting that he's the figure piece of the cast. Um, and then we go into uh, what I feel like is a super bizarre choice of this weird omniscient narrator talking about our protagonist having stomach cancer. Uh, not to dwell on too long. I wanted to know what you guys, uh, your feelings were on this omniscient narrator chiming in from time to time and kind of being uh, real judgy about uh Watanabe's life. It it felt like it dated the film. I mean, everything dates the film. It's an old movie, but like it felt like really like a product of its time for sure. Like, I don't know. I feel like I've seen a lot of old movies and TV shows that have a sort of like uh bold sounding narrator saying, like, here we have a man, you know, blah blah blah, you know. Yeah. What did you think, Alex? <laughs> well, um I, I kinda like I kind of like the narrator, but you don't really see much of him or hear much of him uh, for for a bit, you know? Like, he's very prevalent at the beginning. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, he shows up again, um, you know, two-thirds of the way in the movie to, I guess, you know, let the audience know what's happening. But, yeah, it's very much, uh, very much a product of its time. It reminds me of movies that, like, are older than a movie uh, of, you know, of that of its age uh like you know you it kind of reminds me of old uh film strips of like you know here we have billy he's an ordinary you know teenage <laughs> boy and he has a he has you know he is he fancies another girl but he doesn't know how to ask her out let's see if we can give him some tips like you know, like, <laughs> yeah like, like those like hygiene uh movies yeah. or something like that yeah 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 uh, what it, <laughs> it yeah it also didn't feel like a, a product of its time to me it felt like something older, but not necessarily older movies. It felt like a kind of stage play thing. Like it's something you get in a lot of like Greek plays or Shakespearean era plays where you have these, these omniscient narrators telling you what's about to happen. And uh, I was, it, it's, it seems appropriate for a drama, but then it's, it's really incongruous with how the rest of the movie plays out. And then it's, it's pretty jarring when it pops back in later. Um, To me at least. Um, so moving on from that, we have our opening shot of Watanabe at his desk, which is just, it tells you so much about the character that he is just surrounded by this wall of paperwork, kind of sitting there hunched over, uh, just stamping things. Uh, women then come in to talk about the, 
the problem of this ditch full of standing water uh, in town and they want a park built, uh, Watanabe immediately passes the buck on to the engineering department where we then get this uh, slightly frenetic bureaucracy montage that kind of shows the farce of how things were. Uh, something that it immediately reminded me of is like Brazil and Terry Gilliam. And I've read a lot of places that uh, that this scene served as an influence to him, but I could never find any actual direct quotes from him on uh, on whether or not it was. But there's a lot of there's a lot of very obvious DNA there of them just telling people to telling these poor ladies to go from department to department. Which uh, I, I I say it's farcical, and I guess it's farcical in our eyes. But as people who are living in that bureaucracy, it was probably a lot more crushing to to see to see it kind of framed up on screen like that. Yeah, yeah, it did definitely uh, make me. I read it as comedic um, as well as crushing. You know, <laughs> two sides of the coin. Uh, but then we move on to to once they they get the runaround and finally kind of. Uh, gets gets sent back to the same place and give up for a little bit. We get a, a more characterization of uh, Watanabe and his staff as he is taking the day off and they're speculating over why. Or actually, before that, uh, before the the far scene, we have a a little bit of characterization for his staff where Toyo, the the young girl on the staff, makes a joke about bureaucracy, about how uh, the the joke is that. The person is not worried about the uh, the bureaucracy falling apart without him. It's how well it will work without him, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and how everybody is just this this kind of replaceable cog. Um, but then later later we go on to uh, his staff talking over lunch, and the thing that struck me most about this scene is the kind of framing that they do with like a lot of clutter chairs papers and stuff in the foreground over to characters talking um yeah it feels very claustrophobic uh and you know all that paper and it seems like precariously balanced and stuff like it could all just tumble and then slow everything down even more (laughs) yeah uh, it's something that that will come up again and again but just like his interesting choice in shots. And uh, this is he, Kurosawa at this point had been, uh, like I said, he had uh, worked on production and this is his uh, about 20 years in film, 10, 10 or so directing. Um, but yeah, just the, the kind of, it seems daring for the time to frame these shots that way. Uh, we then move on to Shimura. Actually, we find out where he is. He's at the doctor's office. Uh, getting that x-ray that we saw in the opening scene. Uh, he goes to a waiting room and talks to some bystander patient who's just kind of seems like he's maybe just bored and hanging out there, uh, but gets a little too nosy and starts telling him about these uh, the symptom, symptoms of stomach cancer which and telling him that they'll frame it as, uh, as an ulcer. The Simpsons of stomach cancer? <laughs> the Simpsons. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this part actually, though, uh, he says something really, really, uh, well, like, that basically encapsulates the movie. He says, uh, I hardly feel alive unless my stomach hurts. Yeah. Um, which, uh, well, anyway, I, I probably should have brought that up later, but <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> no, no, it's good. What, yeah, but I feel like what he says, um, 
that's like something to hold on to for the rest of the movie. But yeah, we get this interesting scene of him describing this, and it starts out a little silly, but then like you see the the fear and dread creep over Watanabe's face as he he identifies with more and more of these symptoms, and the the music really kind of comes in and and ramps up that dread with how menacing it is. And uh, all the while in the background, this this other patient is just kind of like really relaxed relaying this and uh it like i i just love how expressive shimura's face is mm-hmm. um something i meant to to note earlier is that ex- as expressive as shimura is and as similar as this is to his role in godzilla we uh will eventually probably get to some other roles that he's in that that kind of show his range like especially in seven samurai where instead of having this kind of uh sad, disheveled, hunched over dude. You have this stern faced straight backed leader of the samurai. Hmm. Um, but after this, this like scene of him, like freaking out over this, he immediately, he goes into the doctors who immediately go tell him everything that the patient had warned him about kind of cementing his, his fears that he has stomach cancer and that he only has six months to a year to live. Uh, which, uh, I was watching this with my wife and she had never seen it before. And she was, she was kind of like, are, are they actually lying to them or lying to him? Or is he, are they just saying this and he's, he doesn't get it. But uh, thankfully the movie removes any ambiguity immediately after that by showing the doctors going over and talk about them lying to him, Uh, which in, in a lot of cultures and communities, uh, it's considered you, you you don't want to tell people that they have a terminal condition because they don't need to know that because you want them to just live their life as is instead of knowing. Yeah, the morals of that are really complicated, complex and kind of hard to yeah wrap my mind around. You know, I definitely like I'd heard that before that this was sort of the practice in Japan and other places. And it, it just seems insane to me. But at the same time, I kind of understand the 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 justification as well which yeah they 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 do go into the morality of it a little bit the the assistant doctor looks real concerned about the whole business he he's real torn on it uh they talk briefly to one of the nurses and ask what would she do if she knew she only had six months to live and she pointed out well the the barbiturates are right over there which was kind of grim <laughs> but uh yeah. but yeah they they do explore that a little bit uh, after this scene, we're we're taken to a tracking shot of of uh, Watanabe walking down the street outside, and uh, one of the more kind of interesting effects of the movie is he's walking down the street and we see things, but it's completely silent. But you don't really notice the silence until all of a sudden he goes to cross the street and is almost hit by a car, and then everything in the world comes blaring into focus, and the the rest of the scene is cacophony. And it, it really it kind of sends home the sense of like isolation and detachment that he was feeling in that moment, having this news of a terminal diagnosis. Uh, uh, we then do a, a Kurosawa trademark wipe transition to, uh, to his home where his greedy son and the son's wife come home. Uh, talking about how they wish they had a modern house and talking about his uh, the Watanabe's pension and everything. 
only for them to be shocked when he's waiting for them in their room in the dark, uh, which they just get mad and, and kind of shoo him off where he is, he's waiting there to, to kind of pour out this really difficult thing and, and get support from them, and they're just being real terrible. Uh, he goes downstairs. Uh, we, we get more of his, like, kind of hunched, destroyed posture. And he, there are these, like, kind of sweet, kind of weird flashbacks of both his son uh, and Watanabe's, uh, his uh, uncle, or is it his brother? I'm not sure. I don't recall. For sure, but yeah, it's referred to as uncle. Flash, yeah, his flashbacks of him and his son. Yeah, but uh, but in those flashbacks, he kind of uh, we we learn that his uh wife died when his son was was really young, and we get some moments of path, pathos, and he it, it kind of lights a spark of like, no, I love my son. I really and doubles down on on wanting to go tell him scrambles back up the stairs and some very interesting camera choices. And as soon as he gets up, the lights go out and he's just completely crestfallen. And then, uh, heads back downstairs, starts winding his clock, going through the motions when all of a sudden, like everything hits him at once. And he just, uh, climbs into his futon and just starts weeping while the, uh, the film pan or while the, the camera pans up to show a 25 year service award, for working at Tokyo City Hall. Oh, yeah, I wanted, yeah, I kind of wanted to <laughs> point out that this movie, uh, like, all together, like, from the very beginning, is basically just, like, a really bummer version of Parks and Recreation. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Joey tweeted about that, I think, at, at some point, which, yeah, the I, I hadn't really thought about it before until he put, put that out there. But, yeah, it's, like fill in the hole and build a park. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It struck me uh, right in that opening scene. And I Googled around a little bit and I found other people remarking on this, but I didn't find any sort of official confirmation from any of the writers or producers of parks and rec, but uh, definitely like, um, yeah. And especially kind of at the turnaround when, when he becomes very motivated and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it also, you can draw those parallels. So from that scene of intense sorrow, we go to the scene back to back to his staff of hanging around. Uh, Odigiri reveals that she wants to resign, uh, as everybody else speculates why why Watanabe is not around. Uh, one of them goes to try to figure out like where he is and talks to. I believe he talks to the maid and finds out that he's so. It, the children then discover he's not at work. They talk to the uncle, and the uh, the uncle, in what I think is a a long tradition of projection, uh, insists mm-hmm. that he must have just found a woman. And we also get to hear about him going to visit, or Watanabe going to visit the uncle and his wife to try to tell them about his diagnosis, who, before he could say anything, they're immediately... He they immediately rebuff him as well. So he's he's just kind of trapped with his own knowledge with nobody else who seems to care about him enough to listen. And uh so uh he he turns the to one last place 
to, to try to comfort himself, which is to go to this bar uh, where we're introduced to an, a pretty interesting character in this novelist who's writing there and obviously has a strong rapport with the barkeep. Yeah, I found this novelist very compelling. I definitely uh, like the sections of the movie that he's in. Yeah, it's... it's the. the I kept trying to extract some kind of meaning from that, and I'm I'm still not sure that what it is if it actually has one. But uh, he he and the novelist meet up together, and the novelist finds him super fascinating because in the, the novelist is the first person he actually tells about his diagnosis, uh, and he kind of like lights his behavior lights a fire in the novelist to take it upon himself to show. Watanabe out on the town, try to try to help him live. Uh, he tells, or after saying that, uh, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but but misery brings out the truth. Uh, he tells him, "I'll be your Mephistopheles," mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, as he's clad in all black, uh, to take him out on the town. Um, we uh, we then get this montage of pretty long long sequence I, I say montage but it they're they're each actually pretty discreet scenes uh they go to a pachinko parlor uh wander down this street full of women one of which who snatches his hat he buys a new hat which is white and described later or repeatedly in the film as being kind of rakish which is very <laughs> out of character for him uh they stop by a bar which uh there's this this movie has more comedy in it than i would have really imagined but uh, one of the bars that they stop at, the lady tries to take his his hat to like oh, yeah. put on a rack. But after after the hat snatching, he immediately snatches it back, which the the novelist finds hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and as they're talking to the to the bartender lady in there, there's this very interesting shot where it's all shot from the pers- the the camera is looking into the mirror behind the bar the the barkeep to to show our protagonist's face, which is very interesting framing as well. Uh, we then go to another club, which has the pianist, and, like, this guy is my favorite, like, bit player. <laughs> he's he's drinking, like, an entire pitcher of beer. Uh, this dancer is just going to town while he plays, uh, plays on the piano. I'm not sure what style of music. Yeah, and speaking of, like, crazy mirror shots, there's those shots of the mirror above the piano oh yeah the ceiling so we're seeing the characters upside down and the tiles look like an mc escher drawing or something and it's very uh very cool looking um but you know kind of dizzying (laughs) yeah this whole sequence is film is is full of really really fascinating and, and like i said very frenetic shots this is where the the a lot of people really contrast uh, Kurosawa and Ozu because Ozu is very famous for having these very flat composed scenes of the camera almost at the level of Tommy Matt as as characters just kind of talk to each other and then everything in in the sequence is just so incredibly dynamic and mm-hmm. just full of so much visual information um the penis asks if there are any requests and this is where Watanabe asked for the song uh, Gondola no Uta, which means gondola song, oddly enough, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, which is a song from the 19-teens that was popular about uh, 
women trying to uh, marry young and enjoy their lives. And uh, Watanabe, he starts playing it and uh, people come out onto the floor and start dancing. But as it's playing, Watanabe begins singing along with it. And uh, Takashi Shimura is not maybe the most talented singer, but his voice is just incredibly haunting. get the scene of everybody slowly stopping to dance to focus on on him singing the song and it's it's a bit of a melancholy subject matter but the way that uh, it comes across with his singing and the the piano is kind of like just this real dirge and it, it just brings down the entire place um the novelist who's been kind of sitting there uh, asleep wakes up and is just kind of like all the color drains from his face and everybody is just kind of real down and eventually is like no we got to get out of here and have some fun yeah and and shimmer is sobbing at this point too yeah he is he's singing yeah it's intense there are a lot of shots like i said uh Shimura is so expressive and a lot of this movie is just like stare closing in real tight on his face during different things yeah, he's he's just weeping. It's a very difficult scene to watch. Uh, but then is immediately contrasted as the novelist. Things continue to kind of go down, uh, down, down a bad path, where he, he takes him to go see a stripper. Uh, we then end up in this crazy Latin club where it's just like the shot for that of the kind of above shot. It's just a sea of heads shuffling around. I couldn't even pick out. Mm-hmm. The characters in that. Yeah, I don't know if they're in there or not. <laughs> I couldn't find them either. Uh, and then eventually we get the novelist and and Watanabe in a car with these two ladies that are just kind of looking for dudes to hang out with, and one of them's counting your money, and the other one's messing with their makeup. Uh, they get kind of frustrated at how dour Watanabe is, and starts singing this uh, American Christmas tree song in like, and it's, it, it's just real terrible. <laughs> but, yeah. I think it's a, I think it's an Italian Christmas song. Well, they're singing English lyrics 
yeah to it well i mean like an italian american oh okay yeah so like dominic the christmas donkey if you've ever heard that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a real like good uh contrast to sort of like uh watanabe singing his heart out very somberly and having a moment and then these ladies just like kind of shrieking in the car and it's kind of sobering to them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, an interesting thing that, that I caught reading on reading up on this movie is, once again, this is post-war Japan, a pretty, pretty good bit into their, their kind of reconstruction. They're embracing democracy and capitalism. And we have little hints throughout the movie of kind of like encroaching American culture, and this is one of the, mm. one of the notes of it. But uh, in the middle of all this, uh, Watanabe becomes sick and has to stop the car where he kind of shuffles off uh, behind some stuff to vomit. And then uh, he eventually comes back and he just shares this like kind of completely uh, defeated stare with the novelist who's still in the car. And it's just like, there are so many soul crushing parts of this movie where like they may have been having fun earlier, but it's it, the night is just completely done by now. And he eventually gets back in the car, and the the ladies continue to sing, and he just kind of sits there staring, dead faced. And the novelist is just running his hands across his face, like, "What what have I done?" <laughs> yeah. Um, we then transition to the next day. He's kind of shuffling down the street with a definite five o'clock shadow when uh, Odagiri finds him. And kind of latches on to him, trying to get him to sign her resignation paperwork. And he's, like I said, he's he's kind of like, he's pretty clearly hungover. He's got a five o'clock shadow. He's not feeling great to begin with. And she is just like all smiles and bubbly, like very childlike. It's a real interesting contrast. And like, the it, it immediately made me think of like Manic Pixie Dream Girl tropes and stuff which i I don't think this movie actually ends up falling into but uh, but yeah that 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 was my first impression watching this with a lot more scrutiny Uh, yeah that's interesting um he signs the he signs her resignation they're they're in his house kind of talking the uh i believe this is when the maid sees them holding hands in their room uh because he's excited that they're going to go out and do stuff. And the maid immediately reports to his children that there's something going on as, uh, as Odegiri and Watanabe go out on the town. Uh, and the, the family is, is worried that this girl is some kind of gold digger and messing with their inheritance because they're terrible. Yeah. They're, they're the worst. Like they're just completely awful. Um, then from, from there we, we get this montage of now he's hanging out with, uh, Odigiri, which the, the first time I watched this, I, I was kind of thinking, uh, that, uh, the novelist was going to be kind of like the, he, he tries to take him out on the town and it's all going to be like this debauched stuff. And then he goes out with Odigiri and Odigiri is going to show him the, the, like, the correct way to spend your spend your time, which that is not how the the film plays out, which is part of why I've always kind of like had weird trying to figure out if there's any meaning to the to the novelist's night out because he's doing a lot of the same stuff with 
with Odagiri and Odagiri talks a little bit eventually about how she's just kind of like going day to day just like he is not really uh w- without without much meaning in her life either she's just kind of like has more bubbly personality but uh he she they go to a restaurant this is the first time we see Watanabe smile or laugh in the entire movie is w- while they're hanging out uh because Odagiri is j- her her like uh, her charm is just so infectious. Uh, she tells him about nicknames for everybody in the office and so tells him that his nickname is The Mummy, which, like, you hear that, you kind of immediately hearken back to that opening shot of him just surrounded by by paperwork, hunched over. Uh, this is also the first part of the movie while they're talking. This this may be the first, the, the most concentrated dialogue we have out of Watanabe in the entire film. But, uh, He's got this weird, very timid style of speech, which gets called out by other characters later. Yeah, that was really interesting and unexpected to me because um, I've heard Shimura speak in other movies, and this is definitely an acting choice. Um, and it's interesting to me because it portrays him as, like, it It reads to me as being, like, weak and and possibly, like, uh, a side effect of his illness, but it everyone seems so used to it. Like it doesn't seem like anyone else particularly notices too much. I mean, they do mention it, but like um, nobody suspects that he's sick, you know. Uh, and he seems to me to be like <laughs> moving very slowly and speaking in a way that sounds like he's weak, you know. Yeah, and that that's definitely something that happens throughout the film is him getting like more obviously not okay but Mm -hmm. uh i think i think his speech style is i i think that highlights his personality that he is just this kind of timid person that lets the world kind of wash over him as he just does whatever he's supposed to in it and uh it's it really expresses why he has such a hard time telling his his family about his condition because they just run roughshod over what he's trying to say because he can't get it out true um, but I do find it odd that like he's he, he gets like slower and more hunched over and real weak and shuffly, and it's not until the very end that they realize, oh, maybe there's something up. <laughs> but uh, talking to Odagiri, he uh, they talk about his son briefly, and he kind of has a little bit of change of heart and reconsiders telling him, and then as soon as he goes home to tell his son. Uh, he's immediately confronted by his son over this woman and just like they completely misread the situation and he is just kind of, he's crushed all over again. Uh, This is where the narrator pops back up for the first time in like two hours. Uh, We get the shot of paperwork piling up on his desk saying how long he's been gone, subordinates gossiping over like what he's up to. Um, uh, Watanabe then like having, having been crushed by his trying to visit his son goes back to Odagiri again, who's now working at a toy factory, uh, and kind of coerces her into going out with him one more time as she's like the only thing that kind of makes him feel happier alive right now because his family is terrible. Uh, in a very awkward scene, we actually, a very realistic scene to me, we get the kind of, uh, 
him explaining to her what's going on. She's very skeptical and is like, why, why is this old dude kind of creeping on me? It was cute at first. Now it's just weird. And uh, we get this very sad kind of desperate scene of him trying to express like how his, his she makes him feel alive because of how alive she is. And like you see him wanting, it's, it's almost like he's a vampire kind of menacing her at the time. Like he wishes he could just suck it out of her. Um, uh, what were, what were your guys takes on that scene? I, like I said, I I felt very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really weird. Uh, I mean, I I would be like putting yourself in her shoes. I wouldn't have stayed. <laughs> I would have just left. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, given the context of the movie and the fact that we know, uh, you know, we've we've seen his perspective this entire time. Uh, you know, you can't help but feel for him, I think. And uh, I, like, the first time I watched this, I was like, man, I hope she doesn't leave because, like, he's having the worst time. Like, like everything's yeah. just crashing down around him and things just keep keep getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really can't... Yeah, it, you see things from his perspective, so you, you feel very sympathetic for him, but I can't help but also put myself in her shoes and feel that awkwardness and the sort of like uh maybe even a little scared you know scariness of possibly she doesn't actually know him that well and you know besides working with him so you know it seems it seemed like a very uncomfortable situation <laughs> yeah um but after explaining that that he's going to die soon and is just trying to figure out how to find like any kind of happiness or meaning in what's left of his life after these decades of wasting it, uh, just stamping papers, uh, she's like, I don't, and this is where the like manic pixie dream girl thing breaks down to me. She, she is responsible for his breakthrough, but she doesn't have any, like, she doesn't have any answers for him. She can't tell him. It's like, Oh, you just do this. She's like, I don't know. This is what makes me happy. Uh And it's, it's a very subtle thing that he finally realizes like, how he can find meaning in his own life. And uh, when she, she pulls out the toy and says that when she's making those toys, it's like she's playing with every child in Japan. Uh, And then uh, Watanabe has, has his realization of, I can, I can make that park happen. And he grabs the toy. He's, he's probably the fastest we've seen him move in the entire movie. Uh, runs downstairs as a nearby group of girls are having a party and uh, is running downstairs as they sing happy birthday uh, to, to their guest who is coming up the stairs, but it it kind of serves as like a rebirth for, for Watanabe as he like finds meaning in his life again. Mm -hmm. Uh, He rushes back to the office, starts. My favorite part is like when he, uh, when he grabs out the paperwork and there's a piece on it that I'm assuming it says, this is engineering's problem. And somebody points out, he just rips it off. (laughs) He's like, no, we're we're taking the lead on this. And then charges out, uh, to, to go visit the site demanding everybody comes with him. Uh, and then, uh, there is the incredibly abrupt transition to his funeral five months later. Um, which like what would you guys think about that that sudden transition? You... Yeah, it does kind of like 
uh it's like running into a wall brick wall you know it's just kind of like whoa okay um and we do get to see more of what happens through flashbacks but um it's you know um very shocking and, and it makes you wonder at that moment like what he actually is or was able to accomplish uh yeah yeah um and not to mention you get to see the perspective of the uh, of his coworkers and peers uh that the the uh the thing that really struck me about how abrupt that was is the fact that there was still like a half hour to go in the movie so i wondered i, I wondered like is this just going to be a half hour long epilogue um but uh but the way it's structured is is actually quite interesting and um i think I think it's sort of uh, it's sort of fitting that you don't get to follow uh, you don't get to follow him uh, like right after he has this uh, you know big epiphany. Uh, you, you know, you, you basically just find out the aftermath slowly and surely. Yeah, um, I'm assuming that because the I, I knew how what the the synopsis of the movie and how it ended. Uh, before watching it, it's hard not to when all the covers of the movie are him on the swing. But mm-hmm. uh, Joey, did were you aware of going in that the park was successfully built and like every and of him being happy at the end and everything? Uh, no, I had seen the image of him on a swing, uh, but I didn't necessarily know that that was the park that he had built, or that I think I did have the thought cross my mind that it's possible that he uh, went to another park, you know, and was kind of thinking over how difficult he was having times or something like that. But, like, um, yeah, I I don't know. Um, I don't think I was really questioning it too much. I was just um, trying to take it all in at that moment. (laughs) Uh, The reason I ask is uh, it's interesting to me, the idea of somebody watching this the first time that has no idea. Uh, Unfortunately, my wife had to get up and, and, uh, go out with a friend last night before the end of the film, so she did. I couldn't ask her what she thought, but like going into this scene and knowing that he he died, you find out pretty quick that the the park happened, but uh, not knowing his ultimate reaction to it ahead of time makes this entire sequence, or seems like it would make this entire sequence a real roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Because uh, oh, go ahead. Do you have anything? Oh, just I think something that's interesting about that whole scene with all the coworkers arguing and discussing is it's almost people arguing and discussing about the movie itself. You know? Yeah. Um, I felt like it was kind of a moment to kind of sit down and take stock of everything I had just seen. And while trying to piece together what the rest of his life was, it's kind of a moment to really like ruminate and think about what it was that the movie's trying to say. Yeah. Uh, to, to get out the synopsis of this part before we uh, go further, uh, it's the the deputy mayor and a bunch of the department chiefs are at the the funeral along with his son and uh, his his department. And all of the, the deputy mayor and all the department heads are taking credit for the for the park and then it's super infuriating how they're patting themselves on the back and being like well he was just kind of a cog he he didn't really have much to do with this and 
we, we get details about how he died in the park on a swing and there's there's a question if you if you don't know ahead of time whether like why he died there um whether it's an act of protest against not getting credit or or what uh then we have these all these short vignettes of flashbacks or after after all the big bosses leave the the lower level workers all kind of get together start drinking and start actually talking about Watanabe's life and this is only the the very end of the last 30 minutes or so of the movie but i think this is the real meat of it and it feels so real like this is this is kind of stuff that happens when people get together and talk about their their friend and queens who passed away kind of like the good and the bad and like their personal opinions not just canonizing him but uh they kind of put together over time oh i forgot the the women of the village who had originally requested the the park come in and burn incense and are weeping and we get these excellent shots of all the department heads and the deputy mayor kind of like looking down in shame after having taken all this credit uh, because they know that like they they're really kind of stealing it from him when they don't deserve yeah, it. Yeah, that was a that was a thing. Uh, you know, it's addressed later, and so it was answered for me. But that was a question that I had in, during this scene was kind of like if they weren't publicly acknowledging Watanabe's um, involvement, how did these ladies know? And then you know we do find out through the flashbacks that he you know contacted them and was dealing directly with them but like yeah that was definitely something i was like but wait a second how yeah <laughs> uh but we we get all these vignettes of him like getting this done his dogged persistence in the face of like uh both people people who didn't want to want to work with him people like yakuza looking thugs who were actually threatening him uh, the the deputy mayor refusing to cooperate and him going like having the audacity to try to kowtow a superior not not through like just just through sheer persistence and him refusing to go anywhere and uh, oh go ahead oh I was just gonna say it seemed to me that that uh, a thing that I thought was kind of funny it kind of <clears throat> goes towards this sort of like um this sort of more dramatic uh, action side of uh, Japanese movies as I definitely saw within that Yakuza part, uh, them being shocked by his lack of fear of death. You know, they're threatening him and he's totally unwavered, which we know is partially because he's super motivated, but partially because the idea of death is just kind of something he lives with all all the time. And I, I feel like I see this a lot in a lot of, uh, other kinds of movies where they're like, oh, he's not even scared of death and I can't, I don't know what to do with that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really interesting in that scene. Cause you see like they threaten him and with, they threaten his life and just like the slightest grin kind of shows up on his face uh, where he's just like, really? And then the, mm-hmm. the like most creepy menacing one comes out of the office and kind of stares him down. And like, there's this, what what seemed to me like a look of recognition of him being like, yeah, I'm not messing with that. <laughs> um, but it, we see that like him getting this park built, which really was him making it happen, is this massive act of defiance in addition to being something that he wants to do just because he cares about these people, wants them to be happy. But like having to like 
having the audacity to run against the current in this way is is really a defiant kind of revolutionary act. And then as they slowly piece together what happened, the police officer comes in uh, and uh, tells them that he died happy. And we'll get back to that scene in a second. But they really do like realize what what revolutionary act this is now kind of vow to uh, vow to follow up on it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the police officer says that he was happy on the on the swing. And then we get this final scene where we realize that like all of this debating over like whether or not he got credit or anything is completely superfluous and he didn't care. He like the thing he wanted to do got done. And then we have this scene where he's on the swing uh, framed once again with stuff in front of the camera. It's through the bars of the, the jungle gym thing. And he's singing uh, gondola no Uta again, but this time the, the music is more uplifting uh, it's the same kind of haunting voice that he that he did it in, but the, the the entire tone is different. Whereas, like last time, it was kind of a dirge. This time, it's a lullaby. And so we see this final shot of him alive, uh, just happy on the swing, singing to himself, like reveling in his accomplishment. Not because he needs credit from anyone else, but just because he like he found that purpose at the end of his life. Um. So we go back to the to the uh the funeral his son realizes that like why didn't he tell me that he had cancer the uncle busts in again completely remote ruining this moment of pathos being like why was his girl not here uh which it it is interesting that odagiri is not in in anywhere in the funeral scene except her representation as it it when he says that it flashes to a box with his belongings got the alarm clock the certificate but also the bunny toy Mm -hmm. that he got he took from onigiri or onigiri odigiri um (laughs) uh so everybody vows to live more like watanabe to defy the system to actually do good uh when somebody comes up with a proposal the next day, the his former deputy, who's now the, the head of the department, Ono, uh, passes it along to engineering just as the, the beginning of the movie did. Uh, Kimura, the one who had been standing up to, for him, for Watanabe the most at the funeral, jolts up, knocking over his chair in this, like, display of anger. But as everybody else just stares him down, he just kind of slowly disappears behind a giant wall of paperwork showing how difficult it really is and how, like, how strong Watanabe was to actually accomplish what he did. Uh, and then we get the final scene in the movie where Kimura is, is later walking past the park and kind of takes in Watanabe's accomplishment. We get... Uh, all these children like laughing and playing uh, two children are, are called away and it leaves the shots of the swings kind of swinging empty now, which is a little bittersweet. And then it pans back up to the bridge, but in a, in a silhouetted shot where we can't really see it. It's uh, like presumably Kimura, but because it's silhouetted shot, it cut, it's am, kind of ambiguous where it could be like, uh, Watanabe looking on over his accomplishment, uh, happy, and then just walking off off the bridge, off screen, and the film ends. Oh, that's an interesting interpretation. 
of that last shot. That's how I saw it I as like actually. Like I I I saw it as kind of um so we're kind of crushed at that moment where um is it Kimura yeah. uh, stands up in the office and and is stared back down. But then this kind of like last shot kind of filled me with a little hope that like maybe he's not strong enough now, but that in time he will live on to sort of embody the um the ideals that he he inherited from Watanabe and then sort of also maybe that gives you the idea that you can too, you know. Yeah, I definitely get that. Like the him looking down over the the playground is I guess supposed to empower him with with witnessing what uh Watanabe did. Mm-hmm. And 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 does give hope that maybe he'll this will bolster him through the future. But uh the reason I think it's intentionally ambiguous and you're supposed to believe that that it could be Watanabe is you haven't really seen a lot of uh, a, a lot of Kimura in a hat through most of the movie, but it's been so so heavily established that Watanabe's silhouette is is wearing that hat. Uh, when you first pan down from the from the bridge, you you do see Kimura front lit and can tell it's him. And then it it very clearly pans through the the playground, and then very like very intentionally pans back up and all of a sudden it's in silhouette and you can't see. So I do think it's very intentional that it's ambiguous. Who's, who's actually looking down at the very end there. Yeah. I like that a lot. Cool. Um, so yeah, what, when do you guys have some, uh, general reactions to the movie, Joey? I especially want to know being this being first time viewing for you, what your, uh, kind of overall read on it was. Hmm. I, yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful and, and found it very moving. I felt like, you know, I feel somewhat disconnected from the specifics of critiquing Japanese bureaucracy. Um, Side note, though, I just saw Shin Godzilla, which actually uh, deals a lot in this theme, and that beginning scene that we were talking about, uh, feeling like Parks and Recreation, actually also reminded me of uh, Godzilla. But (laughs) anyway... um, but the overall theme of like the idea of like the shortness of life and fear of wasting it really did resonate with me uh, for sure. Um, a thing that I like a, a lot about it is that it focuses on this sort of like middle, like middle step, middle management. Uh, so we're not looking at the. We see a lot of stories where it's the lowest of the low, the peasant who has to rise above their like horrible situation to to do something and 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 it's also not the kind of movie where we're necessarily looking a lot at the top decision makers and critiquing them or or pushing them to like change their ways or something we're looking at sort of an average person and it gives you like kind of that idea that I was saying where it's empowering too it's, it says that you know your life is important and it's important for you to like create something and do something with your life and, and that you can. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. Alex. Yeah. yeah uh, Joey kind of hit it on the head. Uh, but um, yeah, I love, uh, I love you here. I, um, it's a very, like, it's a very somber movie, but uh, there's, you know, it, it it's a very, uh, it's a very, a very sweet story, I think. I uh, and you know you have to 
you have to give it you have to give a lot of credit to the actor um he uh like as you as you say his his facial expressions kind of make the movie i think and um you really get a sense exactly like how sad and lonely of a person he is and and you kind of feel you feel it like throughout the entire movie and when he has that rebirth so to speak uh you know it that's a you know i mean that's naturally the turning point for him as a character but also uh for the movie and that's when i think that's when i think the last two-thirds of the movie is when the real movie really begins Mm -hmm. because you know everybody else starts to really examine what kind of a person he really was and you know what what could have uh brought brought forth this change did he know that he had had, did he know that he was sick uh you know who was this who was this woman you know it that uh, I, I feel like uh, looking looking down and seeing uh, seeing people at your own funeral is something like uh, yeah it, I I don't know if it's a common thing but like it's definitely something that I I would have like I think about sometimes like like oh, I wonder I wonder what kind of legacy I'll leave behind one day sort of situation and uh, I don't know I feel like the the last two thirds of the movie or last I'm sorry one third of the movie is uh is sort of uh I don't know, it sort of is like that. Yeah, going going to what you were saying about uh Shimura really conveying a lot with his face, uh, an observation that I had made was that there's two common shots uh that that are a lot that repeat themselves a lot in this movie and there's one that we remarked on where there's a lot of shots of directly very up close uh, and uh to his face where he's staring directly at the camera uh, and you really feel it there. But there's also a lot of shots of people sitting across from each other or sitting near each other, just kind of looking at each other and kind of reckoning <laughs> with each other. And you really like, uh, I think that in an, in a similar way uh, brings you in you, while you're not being directly confronted with uh, Shimura's face and his emotions, you're kind of like, seeing other people being directly uh confronted with yeah. that and yeah um i was gonna say overall uh the first time i watched it like i said i i probably watched it doing something else and wasn't paying that close attention something that really struck me this time that i hadn't realized before is how like beautiful this movie is for being something that's just kind of uh i mean it it's very moving but very mundane like things we all deal with subject matter instead of being like these crazy castles or countrysides it's just a city but like the the framing of just even the more more subtle shots are all just beautiful um but thematically something that that has always stuck me is is like the morality of this movie is it's it's very strong but it's ambiguous in one aspect in that like it this movie drives you to want to do something to, to find meaning in your life, but it's not preachy to be like you have to, like, it, it doesn't tell you what that, that meaning is. Uh, Watanabe found his in building the park, but it's ambiguous. And if it's because he wanted to see those children, children actually play, if it's because it's something that he felt that he could affect change on. Uh, and, and like the, the comprehensive number of reasons behind what he did are less important than the fact that he found meaning 
and found something that that drove him to to like feel he did something with that last little bit of his life instead of just throwing it all away with 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 meaningless or frivolous things um I was going to ask if you guys had any like any favorite scenes or favorite shots that that we haven't covered already if you wanted to highlight anything um I love when he's confronted by the yakuza uh, in one of the flashbacks, and the guy tells him you're risking your life, and he just smiles. <laughs> um, I, 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 that's that's such like a, a high point for, for him in his situation. I think, where where yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you idiot, is like I, I, I win. <laughs> like, <laughs> no matter what happens now, like I win. You've congratulations. You just made me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I love that scene too. Um, I'd say my favorite scene is uh, the first time that he sings the gondola song. Um, it's very powerful. I think that you know, I I talked a little bit about how much I loved the opening visual of that scene where we're looking up at that mirror and that sort of manic dancing of that dancer is so f- <laughs> so weird and fun and funny to watch that it really hits you hard when we get to the sort of emotional part. Uh, of him singing and and crying and um, you know I choked up as well at this point and I'd say that up until this point I kind of understood the gravity of what was happening but this is the first time in the film that I like really truly felt it yeah Um, if I had to pick an actual favorite scene though I would would probably the scene where he tells uh, um, uh, Otagiri that he's going to die soon with uh with the bunny and you know where where he has his his big life-changing moment just because that's i don't know i love i love like how powerful that turnaround is where he he realizes that he can do something uh i was gonna point out maybe not my favorite scene but what what to me was the most moving scene uh was when the the women of the village come in to burn incense and cry uh the the interspersed shots of the the business dudes being ashamed is is uh rewarding but kind of incidental to the scene but what what really got me about that is showing how much Watanabe had affected these people's lives and made them like made them happy and how much they miss him and how much they respect him and and owe him for what they did and like so the this first time he sings gondola no uta is i mean it it hits you pretty hard but like this this is the scene where they're all crying where i like kind of got teared up and that they these these people like loved and missed him mm-hmm. so uh, maybe not my favorite scene but definitely the most moving one to me Yeah, and around then, when we mentioned this too, when the son uh, kind of takes a moment by himself to kind of question why uh, his dad never told him that he was dying and stuff, I, what I really wanted, you know, that would have just like felt very liberating is for them to literally be like, oh my gosh, that time that we scolded him about having a girlfriend, uh, he was trying to tell us, but you know, they're not going to have that moment, but like... um it it does uh yeah that was also similar to the the um the office workers being confronted with this um it's kind of nice a little bit to to see 
the people who are kind of a little more hmm, a little more villainous <laughs> i guess you could say um kind of under you know feeling feeling some remorse uh for for um watanabe yeah he- the the son doesn't get that specific epiphany but you do have in that moment where the wife reveals that that uh Watanabe had said had basically laid out all the paperwork and set it up to fast track his like his pension for to, for them to get that money so it would be he he was even in these last moments after he had like felt completely abandoned by his family that Watanabe had set up to care for them and just that extra gut punch to his son of like, oh, he he really was looking out for me still. Mm-hmm. Um, it's real interesting. Uh, any other any other thoughts, guys? I think that just about covers it for me. Yeah, it's it's hard to, it's hard to it, the, I, it's a very emotional movie, but it's hard to exactly put words to everything about it. Yeah, it, I would call it a kind of a hard movie to unpack in that regard. Um, it, in that, like, it's very, I'm not gonna say cut and dry, but it, it, the movie wears itself on its sleeve. Mm-hmm. Um, like even, even the, uh, like the happy birthday thing, um, it's not as subtle as it probably should be. Uh, you know, the, the concept of rebirth. Yeah. So to speak. A thing that I'll be thinking a lot about now that Scott brought up is sort of why uh, is that novelist the whole sequence with the novelist now, I think you have a really interesting question of like why that couldn't just be condensed to be this, um, a slightly longer sequence with, um, with the girl with Toyo. Well, cause he didn't you know? know though. He didn't know how to, yeah. how to live. And yeah, like the novelist is sort of like a spirit guide. I think like mm-hmm. this is, well, let me help you on your way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I had that idea that kind of like the novelist, he needed someone who thinks in ideals and sort of romantically to guide him to, you know, but, uh, the, I guess, I guess Toyo kind of like thought a little more realistically, uh, but, uh, wasn't as confined to, uh, to just staying in the crappy office and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, f- befitting of an Akira Kurosawa film, this episode is running a little bit longer than than most of them, I think. Um, and uh, I'm a little bit sorry that we're we're ushering in winter with kind of a dour movie, but at least it's one that that is in the end uplifting and kind of motivating. Uh, and and hopefully we all actually pick up something from that and try to try to find some meaning and agency in our lives. Uh, but to kind of make things more lighthearted going forward, I will hand it over to Alex to introduce our next movie. Yeah, the next movie that we're going to be uh, covering is Tampopo, a 1985 film uh, by Jizo Itami, uh, and it is about ramen. <laughs> it's uh, it's an awesome movie, really funny, and uh, let, me, let me tell you, it, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll warm you up, just like a <laughs> yeah, nice heaping bowl. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, when Ikiru leaves you out in the cold. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gonna, yeah. Um Yeah, I looked into this a little bit and t- to the best I could find it is not available streaming anywhere, uh unfortunately. Um even for like rental. Like on um, Amazon, not on there. Mm-mm, I don't think so. 
I could I could have missed it or something, but the DVD is available. Um, and also, Criterion has restored the film and has been doing screenings, theatrical screenings of it, um, as early as like in this past month. So you know, keep an eye out for screenings near you. Um, but this one is going to be a little bit uh, harder to see, but totally worth it. And I would also say that it's not a movie that can really be spoiled. We might, you know, tell you some jokes uh, that you would, wouldn't would have known, but there's not really, like, a, it's not super uh, important that you stay away from plot spoilers, you know? Yeah. Uh, so even uh, even if you haven't seen it yet, give it a listen, and then maybe that'll motivate you to go see if uh, you can track down that DVD. Yeah, it's super good. Well, you can find the DVD on Amazon. Looks like it's about seven ten dollars, and the Blu-ray is slightly more expensive. Yeah, uh, and totally worth it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, never mind. It's out of stock on DVD. So yeah, find the Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> find the Blu-ray uh, for seventeen sixty-four on Amazon.com. Unless that's unless that's an international version. I don't know. Uh, find find it. It's a good movie. Yeah, I'll have to find it since I, it, I'm going to be the one this time around that has not actually seen the movie. So oh, wow. I'm going to have to oh, check okay. it out. I'm pretty excited uh, by reputation. It's it uh it sounds great and it. Any excuse I can find to go with ramen, go get ramen with people, I'll take it. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I should note that you can rent it on Amazon if you have a film box uh, account. Oh, which okay. um, I don't know what that is, but you can get a seven day free trial <laughs> and you can watch it that way. There you go. <laughs> so, get seven day free trial for film box and then cancel or keep it. <laughs> I'm not your mom. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, once again, I'm Scott. I'm at Vriska Chat oh, uh, yeah. on Twitter, V R I S K A Chat. Uh, find me there. I'm not up to much lately, uh, but yeah, just, just give us some feedback on the show. Uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, uh, Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter at Dude Exclamation. I was gonna add Vine, but. Uh, Vine's dead now, so Rip. whatever. R.I.P. R.I.P. Pour it out for Vine. And you can listen to me weekly on the One Piece podcast. Joey? Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter at Joey Weiser and joeyweiser.tumblr.com for updates about uh, my work. I'm a cartoonist. Um, Merman Volumes 1 through 4 are available in hardcover and digitally. Volume 1 is available in softcover, and Book 2 is coming out in December in softcover. So uh, look, look out for that. And um, I'd also like to mention the Toho Yarrow Twitter account. Uh, follow at Toho Yarrow. Um, and you can also email us, uh, tohoyarrow at gmail.com. And uh, we are always happy to hear feedback, and uh, we're gathering questions to eventually start a mailbag segment where we can talk about kind of like general topics and stuff like that. Um, and other than that, leave us an iTunes review um, and, and rate and review on iTunes. Uh, that would help us out a lot, help others find the show. The, and, and Toho Yaros uh, recently has become available on Google Play as well, which is cool. If you have another like method of listening to podcasts that we are not on that you would prefer other than how you have been listen, listening to us, let us know, and we'll get in touch with the uh, people who can make that happen. Uh, 
and see if that's possible. But yeah, so definitely uh, please follow the Toho Yaro Twitter account. We talk about the upcoming movie and, and tweet about like Japanese movie news and stuff. It's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, ask us questions, give us feedback, let us know what you like and don't like. We want to make the show better for you. Uh, thanks a lot, everybody, for listening again. Um, we'll see you next month for uh, for some delicious ramen. <laughs>